This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Kit Knightley, thank you for joining me in the trenches. How is the information war treating you? Um, I don't know, attritionally, I suppose. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> like all wars, you just have to sort of get up and do your bit and hope you make it up through the day. What is Off Guardian? Uh, when I stumbled across it a couple of years ago, um, I thought, this is a strange name. Yeah, I suppose it is. Um, well, Off Guardian just started as like a... In 2015, in 2014, rather, um, the first Ukraine crisis happened. Mm. And um, sort of by accident, the, the comments section under articles on The Guardian became like a... a you called it um, the information war. That's what it was. It was people in like pitched comment battles saying, well, that's not what's happening. This is what's happening and so on forth. And the editors would take a stand and would start just, they just started banning people that were giving the Russian perspective. So it was impossible to get like counter mainstream information into the comments section there. And so somebody, this is actually before my time, I hadn't actually joined yet, but somebody said, well, we'll just stay our own, we'll just create our little own blog where we can put the comments we would put on the Guardian and people can read them there. It's off Guardian because we were all kicked off the Guardian. Um, <laughs> um, a, a few months after they started, um, I was emailed by one of the the founding editors and said, "We saw you got you're having trouble getting your comments published on the Guardian. You could come and write stuff for us." And so I did. And uh, a couple of years later, pretty much everybody else had moved on, and I hadn't. So I was left as the editor, and the, the site itself evolved from just just like random chatty comments and links to information people in the West wouldn't see, which is what it was originally, just like, mm. this is from a Russian newspaper, you probably wouldn't see this, here it is, um, to actually becoming like a, a proper news outlet. People started sending us articles and we would publish them because nobody else would. So that became our mission in the end, was just to publish stuff that wouldn't get published anywhere else, no matter what it said, pretty much, like stuff from either side. If it wasn't getting a mainstream hearing, we would publish it on, on lots of things. And... Um, here we are. That's that's what we still do. Only, it's an interesting situation that we find ourselves in. We're in the year 2022, and we yet we're back at the witch burnings. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just, and and not not even specific on any specific subject. Just the whole the culture has shifted on everything. Everything has got such a narrow range of approved opinion. Why do you think that is? I suppose the same reason that the Inquisition did that and the the, the the tone around the Salem Witch Trials was it's about controlling people. It's about, mm. it's also, you would chart through history that, um, and there's a very good book that goes into this during about uh, Richard, the, Richard II and Henry IV called Who Murdered Chaucer by Terry Jones, who unfortunately died a little while ago. But you can sort of chart like freedom of expression and freedom of opinion with secure power structures. If the, if the people in charge feel secure, they don't mind people expressing themselves. But if there's a political transition, suddenly the power structure becomes insecure and there is a need to sort of assert control through fear of losing control. 
and that way like either religious or educational or public standards get tighter and tighter just as a way for the people who are in charge to feel like they're in charge and that's definitely happening now i would say that as of i don't know maybe five six maybe more years ago the divide between corporate and state is virtually null i mean the same people work for both they move back and forth the same standards are applied constantly i i, I would say that you're talking about one entity that when you say big companies and big government you're talking about the same thing i think there is a deliberately inculcated attitude that liberty equals disorder kind of that perception has been cultivated in people the idea that well, people doing whatever they want would naturally lead to chaos so we need people in charge stopping people but the truth is i think that if people were left alone the order would resolve itself well, um, i've got friends who emigrated to canada a few years ago from South Africa and they're dying to come back to South Africa because the Canadian government is just too efficient. Yeah, I can see I can see that um, there will probably be a move. In fact, I would say almost an orchestrated move away from the more I mean, authoritarian is the only word for them, governments mm -hmm. like Germany and Canada um, here in the UK as well. There will people will start flowing away from that into the more, I suppose, sort of Wild West areas of the world that are still trying to maintain some kind of freedom. Although the, a lot of the ineptness in governments in, on the African continent has been cultivated by giant mega companies and from, from Western countries anyway, because corrupt states and incompetent states are much easier to um, rip off and stuff like that. If, if you can hypnotize people enough into thinking they're not being oppressed, then they won't ever rise up because they don't realize that they need to. Mm. Um, now, the North Korea question is is interesting to me because, like, without I feel almost like I don't know. I can't really riff on it because I don't really know the history well enough. But there is a strange dynamic there with um, South Korea, which no one talks about much. But like, South Korea is extremely capitalist. It's almost as bad as the United States in terms of like corruption and you know the whole healthcare system and everything like that and you have that directly juxtaposed with an incredibly like not really even communist but top-down controlled society right across the the 39th parallel i believe it is um there's there's like a almost like a constructed fake binary as we were talking about before we started to see which is more successful, which people approve of and stuff like that. I, I, there's an awful lot of like complex geopolitics, you know, mm. that go on behind the scenes. And I wonder how much North Korea was allowed to be the way it is. But, I mean, because you, you saw America has been complaining about North Korea having missiles for decades and never did to North Korea what it did to Iraq. And you, I suppose, oh, that's yes. the fact it's on the border with China and Russia, but let's talk about those binaries uh it's a term that um that we're seeing more often these days what yeah. are they yeah what are they well i suppose the fake binary or is the constructed illusion of choice between two two options that are almost identical 
I mean, it kind of started with American politics. You know, they alternate Republican and Democrat, but there's no real difference. We do the same thing here in the UK. Um, the fake binary is um, a way to give people the illusion of choice. Like Orwell said that imagine in 1984, the future is a boot stamping on a human face forever. But the future isn't that. The future is two boots, a left one and a right one, and letting the people getting stamped on choose which one every now and then. So I suppose the next question is, how do you determine what those binaries are? I suppose you have to sort of see where they align, where they agree, and you have to then try and talk about the you have to take like the venn diagram of left and right and communist and capitalist and everything like that there's a big part of that in the middle that's the same and you have to challenge that really like um the the, the greatest fake binary going on right now is russia and and america and nato now that's not to say that they see they secretly are like best buddies and the and their conflict is fake but their conflict is not as whole and as complete as it is marketed to be. There is a foundation of shared interests that both Russia and the West have um, around COVID, around controlling the populations. In the, at the end of the day, governments have more in common with each other than they have with the people that they're trying to govern. So, for example, the West uh, is trying to impose digital ID and CBDCs and Russia is actually doing the same thing, despite the fact that at the moment, you, at, yeah, despite the fact you kind of want to support Putin. Yeah, I mean, and and as I, I've I've said this before, but you can see from Russia and to a lesser extent China, but from Russia's point of view, there is an appeal to globalism because it involves not having NATO nukes pointed at them constantly. You know, one world government in which Russia gets a seat at the table is better for Russia than a long Cold War with NATO or even a hot war with NATO. So you can see the reasoning behind it, but that doesn't mean that's not what they're doing. And it doesn't mean that they have the interests of ordinary people at heart, certainly not ordinary people who aren't even Russian. Yeah. But doesn't, doesn't this kind of enlightenment also run the risk of triggering a sense of nihilism? Yes, I suppose. I mean, I've heard people say that. Um, it depends. I, you have to kind of pick and choose where to get. I mean, where to get your your belief and your hope from, I suppose. I mean, I would say that if you choose to put all your faith in, a, in an authority figure, or a, especially a political one, you're kind of setting yourself up for a fall. And it's better to just realize that than it is to go on thinking that there is a political class that cares because I feel like you're just, maybe you'll feel better and you'll be nihilistic, but the actual pragmatic ends will be much worse. It's better to feel hopeless and be able to build something than to mm. feel hope in a sort of illusory way. Uh, you say political, but also in the corporate space. I mean, you've got Elon Musk, which... Yeah, uh, which, oh. which, yeah. I mean, he creates a huge amount of conflict. 
out of, out of nowhere as well. Elon mm. Musk has not been a controversial political figure at all for years. Suddenly he says, like, that's an interesting study in constructed media, like fake binaries, because nothing he said warrants the reaction he got. It's like they're staging a fight. What is your view on Elon? Um, I I have admitted that I have a, a soft spot for him, probably because he is South African. But and he says the right things. But there's something in me that says, ah, uh-uh, hold on, you, you you're not the world's richest man because you're nice or trustworthy. No, no, I I I would agree. I have a soft spot for him in the same way I had a a genuine slightly odd soft spot for Donald Trump, not because I liked him, <laughs> simply too. because it was too much fun watching him annoy people. <laughs> yes. Like, it's just, it's just hilarious. I, mm. I don't care if Donald Trump was the worst president in the world. Mm. The morning after Hillary lost that election was one of the best mornings of my life. Um, and Elon, you have to have the same approach to Elon Musk, I suppose. You have to, I mean, he's obviously very bright. He's incredibly smart and he says funny things and he says correct things. He's one of the few people to point out um, the um, the falling birth rate. Like so much of the talking point in the media is, oh, we're overpopulating the earth, we're overpopulating the mm-hmm. earth. And that simply isn't true. Um, and it's going to be used as an excuse for um, possibly terrible things down the line. And he's one of the few public people to say that's not true. The birth rate is collapsing. So I suppose, I mean, you, you have the healthy attitude to it. You know, you can agree with the things he says that make sense. Like anybody else, he will say some things that make sense and you can agree with them. You may say some things that don't and you can disagree. Mm. But politicians, newspapers and billionaires are simply three things you should never trust. Sure. But, I mean, do you not think by virtue of the fact that he is also a person like you and I who goes home and eats dinner and goes to bed at night and thinks about things. Is it not possible that we also find ourselves falling into a trap of ultra cynicism? I mean, he could genuinely believe those things that he's saying. Yeah. um, I don't know what the exact quote is, but um, there's nothing so dangerous as a man who believes what he says. Um, Um, yeah, I, I I do agree. You can fall into a trap of talking like the elite, like there's some sort of perfect planning robot class that know everything and get everything right. And obviously that's not true. Um, and you shouldn't dismiss people's humanity simply, you know, for your own sake. It's not healthy to think of other people as not really people. Mm. But I would still just, I wouldn't trust his intentions I wouldn't right. trust anybody with as much power as he has yeah. or could potentially have. Yeah, that makes sense. What are other false binaries that are that are on your radar? I mean, Russia, Ukraine is a big one, and I think the obvious one is is uh, SARS and COVID. Now, I am of the opinion, and I've changed my view in the last two years, that I, I don't think that it's real. I think it's rebranded flu, and I'm not going to die on that hill. It's just my, my personal view. But I do see the arguments around the lab leak theory the bioweapon and the and the, the the wet market as some sort of um fake binary because yeah ho- oh, well it, yeah because it holds you it holds you in that in that overton window exactly it holds you in the very important belief mm. that 
the virus is dangerous mm. and more importantly that something needs to be done about it mm. like that is um that's kind of a hallmark of point of when when you see opinion being steered as orwell said i'm going to keep quoting orwell unfortunately the guy was really right a lot um it makes it look like we've got no original material but orwell <laughs> said it all 50 years ago um, you, um, they won't just control the mainstream, they will control the opposition. And that is the purpose of a fake binary, to control, control the 85% of people who believe the media, yes, and then also control the other 15 who don't. And uh, the fake could... binary around, around COVID was, uh, okay, COVID is real and is potentially dangerous, mm. but you don't need vaccines. You can just treat it with, um, with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And it wasn't really a natural virus. It was leaked by the Chinese and they played both sides just this week, just yes. this week, China said, Oh, the U S leaked it. And who said, Oh, we think maybe China leaked it. But both of those stories, no matter which side you take, suggest that COVID is real and dangerous yes. and we need to do something about it. So they're both arguing the same point hmm. just with a different origin story. Yeah. But I mean, also one of those stories could be true. And that's that's a, that's that's what I was asking earlier about how how do you it navigate that be. fog? How do you navigate that fog? Well, I suppose the way we navigated it off Guardian was to take up a very simple purpose, the very simple um, position. If <laughs> it doesn't really matter where the virus came from, right? Who made it or how? If it is a bioweapon, it's really not very good because it doesn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and if um, and if it's not, then it's a virus that 99.8 something percent of people survive. Either way, 99.8 people, 98 percent of people will survive it. So, what difference does it make? Um, it does make a difference to some degree because, in the same way that those people who are now suddenly dying, uh, for no reason whatsoever, and nobody's asking why, surely there is some significance in wanting to know the origin story. Um, only if they're if what they're dying of has anything to do with that. I mean, the suggestion, um, and I haven't actually seen, I'm hesitant to say, oh, the vaccine is definitely killing all these people because I haven't seen data that can definitely prove that yet. Um, but the virus and the vaccine are separate issues. I mean, the mm -hmm. vaccine is definitely real. They definitely injected billions of people with it. Um, and if that is going to end up killing people, that is something that does need to be investigated, but that doesn't really have any bearing on where COVID, if such a thing ever definitely, like as a discrete entity was proven to exist, you know, mm, mm. it doesn't really, I'm just not sure it, it will be a way of diluting and diverting the conversation. And there'd be an awful lot of energy expended in people who basically agree arguing about that. Right. And I don't think it's worth the time or the effort. I suppose an extension of that same question then is how do you navigate the fog of propaganda? I mean, what are your what are your markers when you when you see it, when you see a story or you hear about something? What what is it that you look for first? Well, first and the first tenet of of ever reading anything in the news is to not believe it. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean believe the opposite. It just means don't believe it. Don't don't like automatically say this must not be true because they said it. But 
don't just accept it as true because they say it, which isn't, you know, it's a slightly different thing. Um, somebody, again, it's an unattributed quote. I've actually looked for a source because I've heard lots of people say it, but the quote is, if you ever see anything in the media, ask why this and why now? And that is, that holds true. It's very important. Why this and why now? Because the important thing to remember is that they will never tell you something mm. because they have to. There is nothing so true or so obvious, it has to be in the headlines. If it was beneficial for them to ignore it, it would ignore it. So if they tell you about it, it's beneficial for somebody somewhere that you know. Um, like, I can't think of a really great example, but news can sit stagnant for ages and suddenly be reported when it becomes key. Um, it'll be interesting to see, for example, um, when uh, the queen dies. Um, Mm. Uh, um, yeah i mean that story with ukraine being invaded it was a nice way to kind of end covid uh, i think we went we um we talked about just a little while ago i said don't think of them as being perfect planning machines mm. um and i think there that's a very good example i think covid the covid narrative was expected to go on longer and be more broad i expected i expected them to broaden it out there was i think they underestimated how much resistance there would be to vaccine mandates and to covid passes these are the two things that people really did object to strongly and i think they thought they would have more public belief behind them you get caught up in that rabbit hole of ah oh, they're just they're just destroying everything and it's it's all going according to plan but the truth of the matter is that you can't control 7 billion people. And you can't entirely... Yeah, that's completely yeah, true. And you can't predict how even 10 million people are going to respond. No, and, and if you try to control 7 billion people and just 5% of them completely ignore you, that's 3.350 million people or something like that who are no, not under your control. Mm. Um, and I think you, you saw during COVID various things pop up, like teachers would form homeschooling groups, yeah. teachers who weren't working because the schools were closed, they would form a little community group and they would go around to different kids' houses and teach them a bit each day or go to a community hall where the kids would all gather together. You know, I, I have a couple of friends who were teachers who did that. You saw the increase in America, especially of farming cooperatives, people growing their own food, people deciding to buy chickens and stuff. There was an avenue in some ways, lockdown almost backfired. It gave people a lot of free time and a lot of time to think and plan. And people responded in ways I don't think they were supposed to. And that shows there is inherently yeah. people don't like being told what to do. Yeah. And if you if they really try and enforce a fake story over the whole world in order to control them, what will happen is, and I think you do see this happen already, you will have the top 1% who tell all the lies. You'll have the 5% media rich people, you know, that sort of fringe politicians who see it as in their interest to partake in that reality and tweet about it to all the other members of the 5% who are tweeting about it. And you'll have the vast majority of the world who simply go on as if they're not there. And instead of controlling people, they're simply 
alienate themselves and create almost two parallel societies, one where people live in a world of total bullshit they make up mm. and the real world where people just get on with it. And that's what I have begun to realize more and more um, is that there is this, there's this dance between design and emergence. How do you mean? Well, you've got Klaus Schwab, you've and you've got Bill Gates, and you've got the World Economic Forum, and the and the and the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Clinton Foundation, and Soros, etc. And you've got all these big public-private partnerships that are trying to steer huge, huge numbers of people through um, central governance. You know, the United Nations and WHO and all the member states, etc. But you also have huge numbers of people just saying no. Yeah. And that fundamentally is, you know, to go back to talking about like nihilism and stuff, mm. that is where you need to take your hope from in the in the in the the knowledge that there is a part of everybody who, when they're told to do something they shouldn't do or they don't want to do, they'll just say no. And that's that should be like that's the hope, really. That's the little grain of hope that lives in everybody is that little bit of them that says no, I'm not going to do that. What are some of your big red pull moments in the last few years um a very important one really shocking because there was a time in february 2020 january february 2020 where covid i thought was just going to be another sars or another mers you know it was just a scary disease the month they'll stop talking about it um they were doing some weird statistical stuff with it and we were pointed that out but then a very important moment um was when realizing they had um somebody had edited the wikipedia page of the spanish flu 1918 spanish flu they edited the wikipedia page to make it seem less deadly than it was they reduced the um case fatality rate which is uh, in january in december 19 2019 i had never said the phrase case fatality rate in my entire life didn't know what it was and Two and a half years later, and if I never say it again in my life, I will be very happy. But they edited the case fatality rate of the Spanish flu to make it three to five percent, which is mathematically impossible given the numbers they were talking about. And that coincided with reporting that the case fatality rate for COVID was about 3.5%. So that showed, that was a wake up call for me, a big one. That showed there was a level of planning going on with regard to COVID, that it was going to be a huge deal. Um, then um, Russia invading Ukraine was very strange. Um, we've done a lot of Russia-Ukraine stuff at Off Guardian over the years. Um, it was simply never in Russia's interest to invade Ukraine. There was never a chance they were going to it. I still don't exactly see. In the hype up to it, Off Guardian and me specifically hadn't said Russia won't because Russia's attitude to COVID had been surprising. I I'd, I'd sort of expected Russia to be like Belarus and not take any part in it, but they had done. So there was, there was always a chance they would go in to invade Ukraine, but tactically it didn't make any sense. And that was a sign that like, when Russia finally did walk over the border, that was a sign that there was something, some change of narrative direction happened. I mean, I've been planning for the longest time to write a, a long article 
about the nature of reality in the modern media world and how basically the moment you see anything in the news you have to be in the position that maybe it just didn't happen maybe they just made it up um there's not there's plenty of historical precedent for that you know the gulf of tonkin incident that started the vietnam war didn't really happen um that girl who testified i suppose would be a nurse very famous the babies and incubators thing she wasn't a nurse there were no babies being thrown out of incubators it simply didn't happen and more importantly she was the daughter i believe of the kuwaiti ambassador to the united states so when she's sitting there claiming to be something she's not all the senators in the panel listening to her and nodding earnestly about all the terrible things she saw know that she's lying and if all the senators knew that she was lying then all the people reporting it probably knew she was lying so the whole thing is fake it's a fakeness and they and and they made it all up and this happens in smaller things all the time like everyone has seen crowd shots where like there's a news anchor with a microphone with like 15 people behind it talking about how there's a big crowd and then CCTV of the street will show it's just 15 people crowded around one camera and there's nobody there. They stage things like that all the time. Um, the idea they wouldn't do it on a bigger scale, I can't say they definitely did in Ukraine, but certainly nobody who knows anything about the history of the media could say they definitely didn't as I a mean, point of principle. Well, of course they did. For example, 9-11, I mean, anybody who believes the official story hasn't been concentrating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you wonder, red pill moments, you wonder, this is a big red pill, how much of it is deliberately stupid? Like the exercise in getting people like, on an individual level, psychopaths had this interesting thing, which is how you can tell a psychopath how, how they don't fit into society because they lie pathologically lie even when telling the truth would be more beneficial and there is a dynamic behind that that a psychopath who simply looks for power in a situation takes a great feeling of power from making people believe things that aren't true now you can't take any power from making people believe things that are true because they're true they might believe them anyway but if you tell somebody something you know isn't true and they believe you anyway there is a feeling of control in that and there is control in it you're controlling this person's reality now so realizing through COVID that the narrative not making any sense is deliberate in order to confuse people and control some aspect of their experiential reality more. That was a big ripple moment. And I wonder how far back that trend goes because people believe the 9-11 story and it is literally physically impossible, but they may as well have said the buildings just fell down because somebody threw a tennis ball at them or something. It's not possible what happened is not possible it's never happened before it has not happened since it's not possible and they made people believe it and i think that is almost as important as the thing itself if you realize that one official narrative is false then everything is up for for question yeah uh, but that i think that is a very healthy mindset to have though i think everybody should be like that and no thing um no terrible thing has ever happened because there were too many skeptical people around. Mm. You know, it's people who blindly do what they're told that are responsible for most of the atrocities in the history of the human race. If everyone just sat around and said, mm, I'm not sure that's true and I'm not going to do anything about it until it's proven to me that it is, the world would be a much safer place. 
It's interesting though because Thomas Sowell has wrote quite a lot about intellectualism uh, being the enemy, um, and in many ways it is because I I am so grateful for my fellow South Africans in the millions who just don't have, earn enough money to worry about the TV, you know, and the media. And so therefore they're not affected. I want to say simple minded, but that's not what I mean. Um, what is the, what is the opposite to intellectual? I don't know. I see. I do. I do get what you mean, but there is a, you know that saying, I ignorance suppose, is bliss. Yeah. Maybe. I maybe. mean, ignorant in the classical sense, as yes. in not yes. knowing, not yes. being stupid, yeah. but simply not knowing. There's a, I mean, the whole intellectual class has been sort of lifted up. Um, I forget what the name of the law is. You know, people raise the level of their incompetence. Um, the school system, the education system of yes. the world has. Exactly. Um, Frank Zappa. There's a brilliant video of Frank Zappa talking about this from the 1970s, where he talks about um, the education system doesn't make smart people. It makes functional idiots. It makes people who are like trained to do one thing and not ask any questions, but believe, and this is possibly the most dangerous part of the intellectual crowd, because the intellectual crowd drew, like, drove so much of the COVID stuff, so much of the new normal stuff, so much of the, the weird new Cold War stuff, people who desperately want to believe in a their own intelligence and b their own virtue mm. and will will believe or do anything as long as they can walk away thinking they're smart and right these are very dangerous people and they have been put in place to drive these narratives the yeah the academic world is might be more educated but it's far more close-minded and far more intellectually limited than an awful lot of non-academics. I mean, and and also there's that problem that intellectuals. Um, shame. It sounds like I'm I'm dunking on intellectuals, and I don't mean to, uh, because they they do some purpose. But there's also that problem of staying in your lane, which is what intellectuals notoriously are guilty of, and so therefore you can never get anywhere. That whole attitude of like well, he doesn't have the certificate hanging on his wall, so therefore his opinion on this is is very recent. You know, I mean, going back a couple of hundred years to the Renaissance, you know, people were simply educated. And if, if they didn't, if just because they hadn't studied one particular area, didn't mean they couldn't. People could mm. read multiple languages. They would study the law. They would study, you know, they would just be Renaissance men who knew a lot about a lot. Um, more recently, it was sort of expected that I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't a lawyer, but people listen talking about politics. Um, people respected people who made sense. People respected people who knew what they were talking about. And that doesn't necessarily mean they've spent 15 years jumping through academic hoops at incredibly controlled environments and universities. That's a very recent attitude designed to limit people who come from outside the consensus. So it, what it does is it slows down um, progress. It more slows it down. It, it puts a cap on it. It's about, it kind of maintains the status quo deliberately. Yes. Yeah. Because no expert in inverted commas is ever going to say something that changes things. For one thing, they have an economic 
selfish need to be the expert and if they say well we don't know they're no longer an expert they're just some guy who doesn't know anything mm. they have ties to the elite they want to get you know they want to get the high power jobs they want to get in the uk it will be knighthoods and stuff like that so yeah it's about it's a system designed to maintain everything as it is because it serves a purpose i think fundamentally the dichotomy between left and right sort of matters I just don't think it exists in the way that we're talked about it. I mean, there is no dichotomy of left and right, really, in mainstream. And, and if someone emerges from either side who is a threat to that, an actual person coming from one extreme or the other, they are instantly, you know, turned on and chewed up and spat out. And look, at, I'm, I'm not sure how much you followed what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in this country. And Jeremy Corbyn was not a great politician and in some ways would have been a dreadful prime minister, but he was a genuine person with a genuine set of principles. And the way the press went after him was, it was monstrous to watch, it was awful. That is the actual dichotomy, it's between people of principle and people without. I followed your elections very superficially um and elections yes <laughs> yes well played uh but when boris johnson won there was something in me that thought okay this is cool because i kind of i kind of always have liked the the more conservative politicians however that is no longer the case because he is absolutely worse than any prime minister i can think of um, in British history. Well, that that's the unfortunate thing there. Is, is he worse than any promise we can think of? Has he just been tasked with being, right. you know, the one that happens to be there when they're doing all the terrible things? You know, I'm not sure how much influence or power he has. Possibly none. Yeah, I mean, he's, just, he's just kind of answering to his overlords. Hmm. I don't think he's... I mean, he's also... A constructive personality um like the whole bumbling boris thing is very much like a a character i think he's much smarter than that really the whole like messy hair scruffy i don't really know what i'm doing thing that's but a bit of a very, put on in my opinion yeah but it's not very appealing is it not anymore well i think <laughs> that's that's a, that's a very non-british thing to think i mean well the man was elected mayor of london and i i maintain i said at the time He's the first mayor ever elected as a joke because the British will do anything for the sake of irony. We'll ironically elect somebody. Absolutely. Um, definitely. There is a, there is an appeal to like somebody who's a bit rubbish for British people. It's that self-deprecating culture. Yeah. And just, just weathered cynicism. Everything's a bit shit. So mm. never mind. And and these are and a lot of the far left and far right ideas are just perfectly ordinary ideas from twenty years ago. <laughs> like national like in, in, in the UK, if you say nationalized railways, they say far left. Regardless of fact, we had nationalized railways for like decades, and most of the European continent still has nationalized railways. It's not that big a deal one way or the other. Um closed border immigration is a far left policy, but like far right policy now but the idea it's a very basic idea that a state should roughly know who is and who isn't a citizen and and for taxation and crime purposes you know I mean, it's it's basic ideas 
but you know if you if unless you believe in basically throwing the borders open and letting everybody in who wants to come in and not even asking who they are or where they came from basically that's a far right position they've yeah they've pushed out the extremes in definition whilst maintaining a bit in the middle it never ever changes uh douglas murray uh, wrote that book uh the strange death of europe which i thought was fantastic and that would be considered far right yeah jordan peterson is considered far right and i don't agree with everything jordan peterson says but the idea that he's some kind of far right figure is absurd he basically says you should just leave people alone and also men and women are different mm. and the fact that these are far right positions now like the the definite purpose of this is to like drive people to extremes yes and to paint everything as an extreme polarization and, yeah and blandify the middle make everything you know you can't have an opinion obviously there are certain things that are definitely right um and that's and that's shopping at that's going to mcdonald's and watching disney plus and everything else taking a political stance is kind of extreme and weird um in europe versus in america it's just it's simply about what you label like the totalitarian point in america like dictatorship and authoritarianism is leftist because of their whole like red scare anti-communist stance but in europe authoritarianness and and dictators are always right and really what they're talking about is the same thing they're talking about specifics of state control on a on an incredibly like broad level the state control of where you go and what you do and who you see and that can be approached from either side but it's the same it's the same destination in the end yes uh what is it? Conservatism is just liberalism going this. Uh, uh, yeah, conservatism is liberalism going the speed limit. Yeah, really, the the political divide now, regardless of like communism or mm. labor or whatever, the political divide is whether or not you believe people should be left alone or not. It's that basic. Yes. Um, up until very recently, it was sort of an assumed thing. Basically, people should be left alone. Um, and now it's been normalized that people shouldn't be left alone because it's dangerous for public health or the climate or whatever. <laughs> but that's, 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 that is why there was like the whole scaremongering about the red brown Alliance, you know, the mm. fascists and the, and the communists were going to get together. Um, but the truth is they will, because basically ordinary conservatives and ordinary labor people might disagree on some points but basically most people think most people should be left alone mm. and it, it, it is that simple like leave people alone is you know it's a libertarian policy but it's also like a hippie policy it mm. goes both ways um i was i was chatting to you about top gun and we were talking about why movies can sometimes be helpful now i'm, I'm only bringing this up because i've noticed that when i talk about top gun 2 which i really enjoyed there's so much pushback why are you supporting hollywood uh you, you you're buying into all of that nonsense you know disconnect from all of that and i don't agree i think you can buy into some of it and i think it is healthy i think it's perfectly healthy to take from something something positive if it's put out in the public you can 
appreciate some parts of it without agreeing with every part of it. Again, it's an incredibly extreme position to say, I'll never watch that movie. It, it's just a movie, you know, I mean, it's not going to do any harm to watch it. The Pentagon's going to get their money either way. Um, there's also, I would say, I haven't actually seen Top Gun 2 yet, but an awful lot of critics have praised it, people I follow. Um, movies is actually like my first thing I would have considered myself to be, like if I'd ever gone into like journalism, would have been writing about movies. Um, and they're also important to follow politically because you get, you know, streams of programming thought and what the overall position is. But they're also just just art, you know, and they they are they have craftsmanship that go into them. And there is a, a terrible slipping standard in terms of making movies, making entertainment of all kinds. I don't know why that is. You could write essays, books about the decline in standards in Hollywood, especially, but on both sides of the Atlantic, definitely. And so these days, when you see something that is simply made well, that makes coherent sense, and isn't deliberately trying to indoctrinate you into some kind of weird political message, people respond very positively to it. And you can see that, you saw that happening um, with Joker a couple of years ago, which was simply an honest piece of well-made cinema. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Top Gun 2 yet. I don't know how honest or well-made it is, people say it is, but I think people are responding to the same thing. Like the whole, they'll respond to something that is honestly made. Yes, exactly. And um, obviously it's got that American exceptionalism narrative coming through. Okay, so it's fine. We can see it. But it is also, it's also a great classic style epic with with jets and an old school storyline that reminds you of of the 80s top gun you know where it was about the soundtrack and about the and about the cinematography um, in a same in the same way lord of the rings for me is like that yeah um uh, yeah lord of the rings i mean there's a it's going to be interesting to see how good amazon's new lord of the rings oh, series no. is it's it's, no. um, it's going to be <laughs> terrible i mean a billion dollars like, eh? a billion dollars is their budget oh you can't trust those numbers apparently obi-wan kenobi costs 50 million an episode <laughs> and it looks like i made it in my garden oh, it's terrible i can't do star wars oh it's all the the budget numbers of course are all massively mm -hmm. inflated just like you never trust government spending you never trust hollywood spending it's there's money laundering going on but, um you said now that you enjoy um you know the art of movies what are some that you would recommend that you know that you think are just great pieces Did it, recent or oh no it just doesn't matter any any period any period mm. well um lord of the rings you mentioned i yes. would say is one of the greatest achievements in cinematic history very important beautifully made beautiful messaging an almost perfect three-part movie, especially the first one. The first one is the best, I think. But not The Hobbit. The Hobbit... The Hobbit has its moments. The Hobbit suffers from several things that didn't affect the original trilogy. Time pressure, mm -hmm. bit of studio interference. Um, and, I mean, that's, I could go into like a whole it's, bunch of back stuff about what's it's pretty the much, It's the same storyline. <laughs> yeah. But... but there are still little moments in there where you can see it's made by the same people who 
we have the same standards, just small moments. Well, the first Hobbit movie is pretty much okay. It's just two and three that, but movies I would recommend, um, I'm not sure there's so many. A great movie for people to watch now, possibly more relevant now than when it was made, but there's this movie called Quiz Show from 1995, directed by Robert Redford. Um, the plot, if you just sum up, is about a fixed quiz show, and that's it. But it's a brilliant movie um, about the nature of the media and just, just a beautifully written, beautifully directed movie. Really good. Um, Okay, I'm going to go vaguely political all the time here because yeah. that's just what I've done. But uh, A Man for All Seasons, 1964, mm. based on the play by Robert Bolt starring Philip Schofield. Paul Schofield. Philip Schofield. <laughs> Paul Schofield. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Schofield is the breakfast presenter, right? We'll just say P. We'll just go with his yeah. initials. <laughs> um, absolutely amazing movie. Definitely a recommend. And, and there's something something uplifting about watching something even if like the ending is slightly down you know even mm -hmm. it ends on a down note if something is well made and and beautifully crafted it is uplifting i suppose you'd say to your soul or your spirit or something you know there's uh, the joker from yes. a couple of years ago a really good movie that had an honest message at its heart that was i mean the political stuff around the joker is very interesting we probably don't have time to go into that who, in your view, was the best Joker, though? That's, in that's an interesting question. I mean, like, I'm not a comic book guy, so I don't know who was truest to the source material. I was never a big fan of the 1990 Keaton film. Uh, with, uh, Jack with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I didn't care for that. I actually thought the second one, Batman Returns, was, but was much better. I didn't really care for the first one. Um, Heath Ledger, I was, I was only a teenager when that movie came out still, just... And I thought it was, you know, in the way of being like 19 or 20 and thinking you know everything, I thought, yeah, The Dark Knight is the greatest movie ever made. It's but so I mean, incredible. Yeah, he was Johnny Rotten. I've, I've actually got, I've actually got uh, a book about Johnny Rotten. Really? Yeah, right. It's, it's, I, I didn't know there was any parallel at all. Uh, Heath Ledger studied him I for that role. Know that. Mm. But I would say in terms of, I would say Heath Ledger was the Joker I enjoyed watching most. Um, he was good. It's hard to say like that Joaquin Phoenix is the best because he's not, I mean, the Joker isn't really a comic book movie. It's like a character study mm -hmm. that they pretended was a comic book movie. So they got a budget for making it. And that's not me saying that the director basically said that we're going to take a studio's money and make a character study pretending it's a comic book movie yeah so uh, you can't really compare a conversation i've had for years i had this with my wife the other day actually is why when we talk about great movies do we never ever think about comedies they're movies also well it's funny you should say that i was i was i was gonna actually go in to a comedy next oh uh, <laughs> ghostbusters original ghostbusters is a great film with political stuff again, weirdly, because of what happened in 2016. Um, You're not talking about the all-female cast, Ghostbusters. <laughs> oh, God. Have you ever actually watched that? No, I can't bring myself to doing it. And I watched I can't... 10 minutes of it, and I had to stop. 
I mean, yeah. it, not because it was bad, because it was embarrassing. Like I was sweating. I was embarrassed for the people that were on it. You know, have you ever watched like sat in a theater and watched a stand up comedian? just die yes. on stage yeah and thought oh it's, that's poor it's bastard very cringeworthy, he's yeah. got to do this for the next 45 minutes and nobody's laughing that's what <laughs> watching that ghostbusters is like it's it's painful i haven't watched it i can't watch a lot of these blatantly woke movies i can't i can't do it i, I struggled with black panther i also hated that charlie Theron one what was it the remake of uh mad max the 20 minutes couldn't oh couldn't do it you you missed out. Mad Max Fury Road is actually really good. Really, um, really. I I would I one of one of the few movies from like the last five or six years. I would say yeah, you should watch that. It just in terms of spectacle, it's just really well done. Mm. Practical effects and stuff. Um. So you said Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters yeah, that was that was a great movie actually. Um. Other other comedies that like Groundhog Day, a yeah, brilliant film. I mean, do you have a preference for directors? No, not really. Um, I would say pretty much everything the Coen brothers have done is great. Highly watchable. Um, I'm a huge fan of... Um, for some reason, I'm blanking on his name. But anyway, um, he's he's really good. Um, three billboards outside of Missouri. Not quite as good as in Bruges in general, but mm. a really good film and a really... A really nice film, like in the purest sense of that word. It's a word. It's a film that looks at people as having the potential to be better, you know. And that's quite a rare message now. I um, mean, it, it received a lot of hate at the time because one of the main characters is a violent policeman who has a sort of semi, who has a redemption arc essentially after doing mm. some incredibly violent, very stupid things. He has a redemption arc, and people objected to this. But I think. That is um, really important, you know. That people, you know, I mean, that is a collapse into nihilism. The idea that people are the worst thing they've ever done and can never be better than that. I think that's that's a, a bad way of looking at things. People always have the potential to be better. Um, Manchester by the Sea was very good. I'm not sure. I mean, that's not a comedy. <laughs> no, but uh, and I've not watched it. Oh well, you should, but don't watch it like. If you're feeling like vulnerable, <laughs> <laughs> don't watch it at night or by yourself. Watch it on a nice sunny day where afterwards you can go for a walk. <laughs> and you can't just sit around thinking, like back to like very primitive cavemen drawing on walls and stuff. People can't just sit around thinking about the here and now and the real mm. because A, it's depressing, and yeah. B, it's boring a lot of the time. I mean, mm. you know, it's disempowering and it's. Just have fun. I, I would say the most important message in Lord of the Rings is that the most the fundamental strength of being decent, you know, I mean, hobbits are small and weak creatures compared to everything else, but they have a core of decency that makes them spiritually the strongest creatures out there, the strongest resistors of, of evil influence and stuff, because yeah. they simply have a sense of what's right and what's important. And also it helps to have hairy feet. What? But you need to go and watch Top Gun so we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on it. But take my advice. Go and watch Top Gun 1 first because there are Easter eggs in Top Gun 2. Lots of them. 
uh, lots of references to the first one. So if you can't remember Top Gun 1, you're going to miss them. I remember Top Gun 1. It's basically, for those who haven't seen it, it's basically pilots who shower together and high-five one another. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's, there's, there's an undertone in Top Gun 1. Is that still there in Top Gun 2? Do they still play it that way? Or is it, like, no. toned down yeah. a lot? I mean, whatever you say about Tom Cruise, his commitment to, like, practical stunts and everything is it's great and, and he does keeping it alive in an age where like cgi yeah. is taking over everything good nightly where can people follow you um they can follow off guardian on twitter and telegram off guardian at off guardian zero on twitter mm. um i don't remember our telegram they can follow me on twitter kit underscore nightly and um more importantly um they can read all our articles at off hyphen guardian.org Kid Nighty, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.